from the studios of Postscript Media and Canary Media. I'm Shail Khan, and this is Catalyst. Cattle manure has already had a lot of energy extracted by the cow, and so the overall yield of gas per ton of material is much lower than, say, food waste, anaerobic digestion, or in a landfill. Well, I would make an anaerobic digestion joke, but I don't want to give it any oxygen. The entire solar industry rests, both literally and figuratively, on a vulnerable material. That material is aluminum. It is one of the most carbon-intensive metals, with the bulk of its supply originating in China. But what if module frames made from domestic recycled steel replaced it? On May 30th, Latitude Media and Origami Solar will host a frontier forum that explores what would happen if the U.S. solar industry shifted from aluminum to recycled steel. We'll explore the impact on supply chains, costs, technical performance, and carbon emissions. This is a must-attend for anyone who cares about the domestic solar industry. Register for free by clicking the link in the show notes, or go to latitudemedia.com events. I'm Shail Khan. I invest in revolutionary climate technologies at Energy Impact Partners. Welcome. So I have this Google Finance page, I think I've talked about it at some point before, which tracks all the quote-unquote climate tech SPACs, or DSPACs rather, over the past three years. I check it less often than I used to, but I do once in a while. This is all the companies that I deem climate tech companies that went public through reverse mergers during the brief but white-hot SPAC craze of yesteryear. Anyway, as of today, out of the 40 companies that I track, only one is trading above its merger price, which is notable in and of itself. That one happens to be MP Materials, which is a rare earth mining company. That's a actually a topic for another day. Um, but the point is, very, very few have continued to trade up. The reason, though, that there aren't two rather than one is that the other one that was trading way above its DSPAC price was Arkea Energy, uh, which was acquired a few months ago by BP for $4.1 billion, which is a share price that was more than double its public debut. So Arkea is a developer and owner of renewable natural gas facilities. And it's actually not the only one who has seen a big exit in recent days. NextEra spent $1.1 billion on a different set of RNG assets. In Europe, Shell acquired yet another RNG producer called Nature Energy Biogas for $2 billion. And the list goes on. So clearly something is happening in the world of renewable natural gas, or RNG. It's also kind of a weird market, particularly in the U.S., with a lot of different inputs and uses, complex carbon accounting, regulatory and policy support that pushes particular end uses, and a kind of big long-term question on the role that it should play or could play in deep decarbonization. In other words, it's a catalyst special, as I think about it. So let's dig in. For this one, I brought on Brandon Moffat. Uh, he's the co-founder of Stormfisher, which is an RNG and hydrogen producer, and he's deep in the RNG market. So here's Brandon. Brandon, welcome to Catalyst. Thanks, Shell. A pleasure to be here today. I look forward to our conversation. As do I. Let's talk about renewable natural gas. Um, and I want to start with some definitions, I guess. How do you think about, like, what, what constitutes renewable natural gas as you think about it? Uh, that's a good question. Uh, renewable natural gas is a very broad category of 
frankly, renewable gases. Uh, that can consist from uh, landfill gas. It can cover uh, dairy or, or agricultural waste uh, biogas. It can be food waste. You can even get into synthetic natural gas from uh, electricity-derived uh, fuels, or you can get into syngases from, from wood waste and other materials. So it's a broad uh, acronym for, for a broad uh, range of fuels that are all have different carbon intensities and costs on how they produce them. Is what distinguishes all these, I mean, we'll talk more about each of those categories, I think, but is the the fundamental thing that distinguishes all of them as a group from natural gas that is, you know, not quote unquote renewable is that all of those other sources are renewable in the sense that they're not extracting fossil fuels from underground that will eventually be depleted. And hence it's like anything that isn't fossil fuel extraction Const is is counted as renewable natural gas? Yeah, so it, it's around carbon intensity. So fossil natural gas uh, has a carbon intensity over 60 grams uh, of CO2 per unit, uh, whereas renewable gas is typically lower carbon, uh, landfill gas probably being the the closest to fossil natural gas, anywhere from a 20 to 40 grams of CO2, whereas uh, a, a dairy project could be like negative 500 uh, grams of CO2. And so those are carbon negative fuels. You've got carbon neutral and, and carbon positive fuels, but they're all from non-fossil derived sources is what I would put in the category for renewable natural gas. Yeah, okay. So the way you're describing it is it's, an, it's a life cycle emissions-based thing. But as you said... The life cycle emissions, and we'll talk more about this, of different methods of production of renewable natural gas vary pretty widely. So I guess one key point, maybe at least for me at the start, is you know, fossil natural gas is pretty clear and pretty monolithic. Renewable natural gas is multifaceted, multiple production pathways. They have very different life cycle emissions, probably different cost structures, I assume, which we'll talk about as well. So it's it's really a blanket term for... Uh, it's an umbrella term for a whole bunch of categories of ways to produce CH4, which is natural gas, without you know drilling for fossil fuels. That's 100% correct. Okay, so let's talk about those different production pathways then and sort of break down and categorize the market. You've already described a few of them, but maybe we can go into a bit more detail, starting with just how do you turn each of these things into natural gas that can be used in a pipeline or natural gas that can be um, used to generate electricity or whatever. So, you know, pick pick which category you want to start with and then just kind of walk us through um, what it takes to turn it into RNG. Sure. So I'll focus uh, right now at least on food waste, which is the area that I spend most of my time in. Uh, and then I'll also talk about hydrogen and, and how that can play a role in this as well. Uh, and then I'll try to tie it together. Food waste, where we spend a considerable amount of our career, uh, we take uh, food waste from restaurants, grocery stores, food processors, also from uh, single home uh, residential. Uh, we usually get that through communities. We collect those materials and we bring them to a centralized facility where we can anaerobically digest those materials to be able to produce biogas. That biogas will be around 60-ish percent methane. The majority of it will be CO2, and then you'll have some other minor constituents of hydrogen sulfide and volatile organic compounds and so on. When we then uh, clean that biogas up and refine it to be able to make renewable natural gas. Okay, so th that's food waste. Um, as it stands today, like what portion of the RNG we produce comes from food waste? 
So I'll answer that two ways. Very little comes from the uh, anaerobic digestion of, of food waste um, because that infrastructure is a higher cost structure than sticking the organics in the landfill typically. Uh, however, as you count for carbon intensity, then that fuel is worth more if you're able to anaerobically digest it. Where a majority of the RNG comes from today is from landfill gas. This is where our waste uh, is collected at our homes and our businesses and is aggregated and sent to the landfill where they will, uh, in a linear model, be able to dispose of that. They will cap that landfill and they are collecting the gas off that landfill. The gas they collect is from the organic waste that was put in the landfill. And so that is how that gas is then collected and refined to make renewable natural gas. The problem is, is landfills aren't the most effective from a, an emissions perspective, and so you still have a significant methane release coming off the caps of those landfills, and that's why uh, it's a lower cost structure and been the dominant uh, source of RNG today. But as people start to account for the carbon, then you're going to see more diversion policies to get the materials out of the landfills because uh, those landfills are such an emitter of methane, regardless of whether they have cap, uh, landfill gas capture or not. Can we just double click on that for a moment? Okay, so landfill gas is the currently the dominant source of RNG production. You're saying it's higher life cycle emissions because no matter whether you are capturing that landfill gas to produce RNG or not, there will still be other methane emitted from the landfill. And so when you incorporate that into the life cycle emissions calculation of the of the RNG, you end up with a higher number. Am I understanding that right? That's correct. Uh and that's just not sort of how we feel about it. This has been uh, validated by various academics as well as NASA. The Jet Propulsion Lab did fl- flew the landfills in California, as an example. And even though they had landfill gas capture, they still were uh, a major emitter of methane. Uh, and so that's something that we're like, all right, we need to do more about. And that's why you see uh, policies like California has to divert the organics from the landfill to mitigate those all the methane emissions. Because from a global warming potential, methane is terrible on a 20-year time scale compared to CO2. And so we really need to get these organics out of landfills to allow us to create RNG in a more sustainable way. Before we move on from the landfill side, because again, landfills are currently the largest source of production, you just talk about the cost side. I mean, we should compare costs as well. What does it cost to produce RNG out of a landfill? So that that's not an area I spend a lot of time in, but what I can tell you is uh, what we've seen from the revenue side or what that gas sells for, it will be anywhere from $10 to $20 a MMBTU uh, is what that gas sells for in the non- uh, LCFS RIN markets. So if this is going to utilities or voluntary buyers, typically you're seeing those large volumes of gas moving at, at kind of a 10 to $20 per MMBTU as the price it sells for. The cost to produce it, well, it was going to get produced anyway. And so really it's about the cost of capital and how these guys build these facilities and how what it costs to interconnect them to the grid. And so th- that number I can't necessarily nail down for you, but it's good just kind of set what the top line revenue would look like for that type of asset. Right. Yes. You're saying in an unsubsidized market, because we'll talk more about LCFS and RINs, but without accounting for for other subsidies, $10 to $20 per MMBTU, that's a premium on fossil natural gas. But as we'll talk about, it's it's a lower price than probably we'll see for some other sources that are taking account of, uh, of stuff like LCFS. So landfill gas, biggest market today, probably cheapest cost of production today, um, sort of main challenge that it suffers is the life cycle emissions. 
what comes behind landfill gas? Like what's next in terms of largest sources today? So large, largest sources that are happening today probably would be in the dairy waste side of things. Uh, you've seen the large uh, animal feeding operations that have digesters that are capturing their 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 methane and they're uh, they're putting that in the market. Because of the existing practices, they can be able to uh, drive a very low carbon intensity. So we see very little of that gas going into the utility market and the voluntary side. Most of that's going into the LCFS and RIN markets um, because the economics just makes so much sense when you take the carbon intensity into, into consideration. And so that space is maturing very, very quickly um, because it's kind of a monostream material that people can easily understand. And so there's been a lot of focus on, on driving anaerobic digestion of cattle manure to pr- produce RNG. Okay, so maybe... Dialing into that a little bit more on the um, dairy waste side, sort of two questions. One, why, you know, talk a little bit more about why the monolithic waste stream is important and beneficial. And two, maybe just walk us through that emissions, the LCA calculation, and uh, what makes it so much better, for example, than landfill gas. Sure. Uh, good question. So the first on the mono uh, stream side of, of dairy manure, because that's been the main focus when the, within the ag space, is uh, manure from the dairy side is usually around 12% total solids. It's well understood, and people can be able to easily uh, build and uh, the digesters be able to, to handle that material. And so that's well understood, which makes it easy to do from a risk perspective and from a financing. And so that's pretty straightforward. And if you know what the uh, gas production should be off of those types of facilities. And so that just makes it really easy to understand and, and straightforward. The other bit is is the historic um, manure management practices on large dairies is to move the stuff out of the barn fresh every single day and put that into long-term storage where you store that material and you land apply it when the cropping season allows you to be able to do that. The problem with that does is that you're having the methane release coming off of those manure storages. And so if you stick in the digesters and you extract that energy and you stabilize that material, well, now all of a sudden you're abating an otherwise large methane source that would have occurred at those large dairy farms. And so because of that, you're able to drive a very ultra-low CI or carbon intensity of that gas. And so it's really, really valuable. However, Cattle manure has already had a lot of energy extracted by the cow, and so the overall yield of gas per ton of material is much lower than, say, food waste, anaerobic digestion, or in a landfill. And so that's something on why the cost structure for a dairy waste project is much different than the other uh, assets we've talked about so far. Okay, so is it accurate to say that uh, dairy waste, sort of number two largest source of production today, much lower carbon intensity, potentially negative carbon intensity, so sort of much better than landfill gas from that perspective, but sort of main flaw is cost structure, which as a result of how much sort of work it takes to get the same amount of gas is significantly higher than landfills. So I have all that about right? Yep, that's correct. Okay. So, and let me ask you this, I guess, additional question on both landfills and and dairy before we move on. You know, I guess one one of the things people talk about with with RNG a lot at the high level is just 
ultimately, how big is feedstock availability and how much of our sort of current natural gas consumption could we theoretically replace with RNG? This is one of the arguments that people make at the high level against RNG, which is that, you know, even if it is great and it is low carbon intensity, then, you know, what we're doing is we're sort of ultimately able to replace, what, 10 or 15% of our current natural gas consumption with it. And so, you know, we're just furthering the infrastructure that at some point is going to need to get replaced anyway. Where are we in terms of penetration of current landfills and dairies um, already turning their waste into renewable natural gas or something else, right? Like, are we at high-level penetration? Are we just getting started? How much growth is there still to be had? So that's a good question. There's a lot to unpack in what you're asking there. Uh, Let's try to break that into a few different pieces. So the first on where the market can go. And so you talked about 10 or 15% say, by volume uh, in terms of the gas that's consumed. So that's probably the right number on a volume basis, but on a carbon intensity basis, 10 or 15%, depending on the mix of landfills and food waste and and other forms of, of RNG, could be much more meaningful from a carbon reduction perspective. So you might be able to drive... 40, 50% carbon reduction from the natural gas sector just by using 10 or 15%. So you're getting into a carbon accounting basis of looking at it rather than just a volumetric basis. And so that's something to take into consideration, which doesn't always get a lot of consideration. People are like, I just want a GJ as a GJ. And I'm like, or sorry, an MMBTU is the same uh, kind of unit. I'm switching back and forth between Canada and the US. And so that's something to understand. Now, there's a complete underappreciation for the size of the natural gas system and and the role it plays in North America. And I'm all for RNG and hydrogen and those types of things, but I'm going to use a, a, a sizing of the market in Canada where I live as a reference point. I think the North or the Canadian electricity grid on a total energy basis is like two to three thousand petajoules of energy. The natural gas system for both home heating and industrial use is like 8,000 petajoules. And so you're, you're not going to be able to get away from gas anytime soon because you need to be able to figure out how you're going to handle that from an electricity, uh, electrification side, as well as from just decarbonizing the gas side as a transitionary measure. And so I, I don't, I'm not here to debate whether we should electrify or, or gas. I'm just like, we need to do everything all all at once to be able to meet the targets that we've set as a society. And so in doing that, 8,000 petajoules just in Canada alone, which is a tenth of the size of the United States, gives you a size of how big the natural gas industry is. And therefore, all of the tools, and so I'm not saying landfill gas is bad or you shouldn't do dairy gas, we need all of it. And that, on a volumetric basis, will be 10 or 15%, but could be much more meaningful on a carbon intensity basis or an overall carbon reduction perspective. So I'll pause there to see if you, can, if you want to follow on, and then I can, I can continue on to answer your question. Yeah, no, I think those are, those are good points. So let's just posit that that's true, that you can get 10 to 15% on a volume basis, higher from a carbon intensity perspective basis. Where are we today relative to that? In other words, again, like what's the what's the current level of penetration on these various feedstock production pathways? Yeah, so you're probably about two percent. You're you're pretty far along on the landfill gas side, at least on the larger landfills. But there's still a lot of small to medium sized ones that are out there that can be captured on. You're also in the dairy side. You've you've captured most of the the projects are either uh, signed up or in construction or operating on the larger farms. 
but there's still thousands of smaller farms. And I don't mean like a couple hundred head of cattle, but 1,000 to 5,000 head dairies are still something that can be focused on. Everybody's focused on the 10 to 30,000 head dairies. And I'm like, okay, that's like, a, if you think about it in, on sort of a, a pyramid basis, you're like, all right, I just touched the top of that. And so I think you're probably two-ish percent penetration of the 10 to 15 we talked about. Uh, and really the, the wastewater treatment side and the food waste side is largely untapped. Uh, right now. And we just need more consistent supply to meet the market from all of these sources to be able to support everybody in the decarbonization. Okay. So that's a good segue into finishing the our list of feedstocks. So we've talked about landfill gas. We've talked about dairy waste. Um, you talked a little bit about food waste at the beginning. I guess we can maybe dive into that again for another moment. Um, where it, So sort of what you said, consistent availability. One of the things I think about with pure food waste is where do you get it at scale? How do you think about that? Yeah, so at scale, uh, so the first bit is is understanding the the market and the waste shed that's there. And so the Northeast, uh, up here in Canada, California, you have where the population is where the food waste is going to be generated, both from the homes as well as from the, the industry, because the industry that makes the food that goes to market, uh, in most cases, is near the population. And so it's understanding how to bring those materials together and delink the processing cost for those materials from the landfill. And so like uh, the SB 1383 along California says you can no longer send organics to the landfill by say, 2025, which is incredibly aggressive. But what you're doing is you're saying you can't send it to that uh, spot anymore. That home is not available to you. And it course corrects the market to be able to redirect that material to anaerobic digestion facilities, things that I've done in the past on that side of it. And so that's how we, we unlock the feedstocks. Uh, to be able to drive this. But where you don't have population, so I'm just going to pick the middle of Kansas somewhere, it doesn't make sense for us to be doing food waste digestion in the middle of Kansas. But in the Northeast, California, Chicago, population centers is where that makes sense for us to be able to do that. Now, we've not talked about hydrogen and power to X, and that's sort of a, another whole kettle of fish we can be able to dive into. But on the food waste side, it's in and around the population centers is where you need to be able to do this. But you need the diversion policies to be able to delink it from the landfill. Otherwise, the status quo will prevail. Mark your calendars for May 30th at 1 p.m. Eastern. That's when Latitude Media and Origami Solar will unveil new research on how recycled steel can help reinvigorate the U.S. solar industry. Why recycled steel? Well, the solar industry is dependent on imported aluminum for frames, leaving it vulnerable to geopolitics, supply disruptions, and higher-cost transportation. By switching from aluminum to recycled steel, solar producers can reduce greenhouse gas emissions and qualify for IRA domestic content incentives. Have questions about the shift to steel and the impact on supply chains? Join Latitude Media's Stephen Lacey, Origami Solar CEO Greg Patterson, and American Clean Power's MJ Shao for this live virtual event. Again, it's May 30th at 1 p.m. Eastern. Register for free at latitudemedia.com slash events, or click the link in the show notes. Okay, and then let's orient food waste. Assume you have access to it. Assume there is sufficient feedstock. Let's orient that relative to landfills and dairy, both in terms of carbon intensity and in terms of cost of production. So cost of production, uh, I would say the market on that is ranging from anywhere from low teens to low 30s in terms of price per, per MMBTU. And that's where the market is for that. And that's because that carbon intensity of that gas will move kind of from 
oh, call it zero to negative 100. And so that's because you're abating that methane from the landfills we spoke about, and you're also displacing the fossil fuels depending on how you use that RNG. And so that is interesting. It's not as ultra low as, say, a dairy digester, but you also get much larger quantities of gas. Because you're using materials that haven't been consumed by a human or an animal, there's more energy per ton in those materials. And so you can yield greater gas volumes than they otherwise could at a farm. Uh, and you're probably in the range of what you could do on a, on a landfill on a, per, on a per ton basis. Okay. And then finishing our list of production pathways, you also mentioned wastewater treatment. I mean, what else do you think is important besides landfills, dairies, and food waste? Yeah, so then you get into wastewater. These are the existing wastewater treatment plants that are uh, in the communities handling biosolids and other materials. And most of them have digesters, so they can producing biogas, but it's frankly un, underutilized. Uh, there's many wastewater treatment plants in the United States that just flare that gas. And you're like, what are you doing? Like, let's look to see what we can do to be able to refine that and utilize that, whether it's in truck fleets or just injecting it into the grid. It doesn't make sense at really low uh, flow rates, but uh, there are many, many plants that are underutilizing that gas. At the top of the, the discussion, I did talk about sort of syngases from biomass and other things, as well as in sort of the, the hydrogen P to G side. Those are other pathways that uh, could require some further discussion, but at least on the wastewater side, there's a bio biosolids production pathway that exists today that is just underutilized. Okay, so we've talked a little bit about the different ways to make renewable natural gas to produce it. Um, I want to switch to talking about the market a little bit. So you've alluded a few times to these two different policy mechanisms that I think, uh, at least in the U.S., are really central to understanding how this market plays out, which is the LCFS, which is California policy, and RINs, which is national policy. Let's start with RINs and then move down to LCFS. Can you just describe what RINs, well, first of all, what does it stand for <laughs> and, and what is it? Yeah, so under the renewable fuel standard, there are renewable identification numbers, and there's different categories that the federal government has allocated for the use in transportation fuels. So ethanol and biodiesel play a role, and then they've allocated gaseous sort of products, so RNG, and there is a D3 RIN, and there, which is a cellulosic RIN, and there's a D5 RIN, which is an advanced biofuel RIN. Now, this whole thing has become highly politicized and frankly doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Uh, a farm and a landfill can create a D3 RIN, but a food waste digester makes a D5 RIN. And there is really no difference from a landfill in terms of the organics that's in the landfill versus a food waste digester. And so it's been very much a politicized piece around kind of the qualification of this. And, and we've tried to fight to start this out, but it really has not prevailed over multiple administrations. And so it's just something right now that we continue to dialogue about to try to make some sense of it. But the D5 and the D3 RIN have different price points and volume allocations and other things that will wildly swing what those uh, RINs are worth. Yeah, can you just give us, th throw some numbers out? Like what, what is the, what's the economic impact of RIN qualification if you're producing RNG. One, and two, I mean, we should be clear on this because this applies both to RINs and to LCFS. This is specifically for transportation fuels, right? Which is one of the things that's weird about our RNG policy landscape here is that natural gas, generally, not primarily used as a transportation fuel, right? Primarily used for heating and industrial purposes and so on. But 
our policy landscape has these two big support mechanisms, one RINs, one LCFS, which we'll talk about in just a minute, both of which were built for transportation fuels and happen to allow RNG to qualify. And so it creates a driver to use natural gas, in this case, renewable natural gas, as transportation fuel rather than in all these other contexts. But uh, on on RINs, like wh- how big an economic impact does that have? It's enormous. Uh, so where I talked to you earlier where uh, landfill RNG to the utility market may move for 10 to $20 an MMBTU, they can be north of $50 an MMBTU by the time they, uh, they take the RIN and the LCFS credit into consideration, so they get into transportation setting. And, and so the same for dairy. Like dairy, you can move that gas for $70 to $90 an MMBTU, which is frankly uh, uh, a really high price. And so that's something that we're like, all right, let's try and understand the price points. The D3 or D5s really have nothing to do with carbon intensity, which is probably where they should, but there's no way that's going to get sorted out anytime soon. And so, but the stacking of the LCFS and RINs puts them in those kind of price points of kind of 50 to 90 to bucks, depending on how you stack and carbon intensity for the dairy and the landfill gas. Can you separate that out? Like how much is RINs, how much is LCFS? And we haven't talked about LCFS yet, so I want to spend another minute on that, but yeah, it's. I, I don't have a good sense on the exact numbers. I'd probably say it's it flip flops. So where we've seen a, a depression on the LCFS in the past year or two, well, the RIN market's picked up. And so what I'd tell you today probably would be sort of seventy percent RIN, thirty percent LCFS. Well, depending on which source of gas and where the market goes, all of a sudden that seems to swing back around. So they seem to stabilize each other. So the average range of 50 to 90, depending on which gas we're talking about, is pretty consistent. But three years ago, where most of your money would have come from your LCFS and less from your RINs is now flipped. Okay. And so what, I guess then we should, we should explain what LCFS is since we've explained what, what uh, RIN is, and then we could just stack them together and talk about the economics. So what is LCFS? So LCFS, at least in California, is a a tool to be able to decrease the emissions from the transportation sector. So whether it be heavy-duty vehicles and other things like that, it's looking to change or bend the curve on the emissions in that space. And so different fuels can go into different vehicles. And so a CNG truck, which is what you mentioned earlier, there might be buses or other things that are in California that you can be able to generate an LCFS credit if you can show you can get it into that vehicle. That allows the obligated parties, the refiners and other groups like that in California to be able to buy an LCFS credit to comply. And so you can be able to stack a RIN and an LCFS credit because you're getting it into a vehicle. But it's got to be in California. And so that's where you've seen over time where landfill gas used to play a very prominent role in uh, in California because of the carbon intensity of dairy gas and because they're trying to bend the curve on those carbon emissions you're seeing dairy gas displace landfill gas, at least in California. Now, I talked specifically about California. There are other LCFS programs that are continuing to be developed. Uh, Canada has the clean fuel regulation. Oregon's been active. Uh, Washington State's been active. New York's working on it. And so you have these uh, state-by-state or sometimes federal policies around LCFS, which starts to take the carbon intensity into consideration, which it really should. And so these are things that we're monitoring very closely to figure out which markets make the most sense for to move our gas into those those, uh, those markets that are willing to to pay the appropriate price for that gas. Okay, so stepping back for a second here, you have these incredibly 
rich incentives in the form of RINs and, and LCFS that, as you said, can stack up such that the price that customers are willing to pay for renewable natural gas that qualifies can be up to, I think you said, $50 per MMBTU, which is incredibly high, right? And much higher than landfill gas is going for, not to mention much, you know, like an, close to an order of magnitude higher than what traditional fossil gas sells for. But that sort of rich price point is for renewable natural gas that with low carbon intensity that is delivered into the transportation sector. So what has that done to the market? Like what, you know, is the vast majority of non-landfill renewable natural gas now being used in transportation? Is it creating a disincentive to use RNG in other sectors? Is that a bottleneck on the market's growth at all? Or is it just an aside? So it's been where the market has been in the past, but you've seen a a movement now by the natural gas utilities uh, that are looking to decarbonize because you're seeing cities or states look to electrify. And when they do that, they are um, the natural gas utilities have to respond because they've got billions, if not trillions of dollars of infrastructure on the ground to be able to move natural gas, which is a useful fuel for heating and a variety of other things. And they have to respond and they need to decarbonize. And so they can either uh, do conservation or they can buy RNG. So you have seen a increase in price over time from the natural gas utilities because they become buyers of that uh, fuel. And, but they're never going to touch what the LCFS and the RINs would be able to do. But I actually am totally fine with moving gas to a utility at a lower price because they're usually willing to sign terms, so 10 or 20 years. And so that just makes lots of logical sense versus a highly volatile LCFS and RIN market. I talked to you about that pricing, but that doesn't mean someone's going to buy your gas day in, day out for those facilities. And so, yes, you can be able to yield higher prices in those markets, but if you're not, uh, you're not going to lock that in long term. And so some people are willing to gamble and, and play that spot market and be able to do quite well. And other people are a little more uh, cautious or conservative, and they will sell to the natural gas utilities as one customer or large uh, multinationals that are trying to decarbonize. And those are good customers as well. Okay, so I guess my other question high level on on the market is it feels like from the outside that something has turned and made the market more bullish on RNG in the, over the past, I don't know, year or so than it had been historically. And I, I, just evidenced by the M&A that we've seen, where a bunch of really big players ranging from NextEra to BP to others have made big acquisitions of either RNG developers or portfolios of RNG assets or something like that um, at what feel like pretty lucrative prices for the sellers. Is it true, do you think, that something has been changing in that market? What is what is driving all of this M&A activity? Yeah, so the first bit is on the policy side. So you're seeing uh, governments and, and large corporations that are willing to put a price on carbon and look to decarbonize. Is it widespread? Probably not, not where everybody would like or like it to be or promised, but there is interest in these fuels as a new source that's there. And so what that's done is, if you're willing to put the blood, sweat, and tears into building that infrastructure, you are able to monetize those assets and, and your hard work, and that's why you're seeing the transactions that are going on. And so both in the landfill gas space, the food waste, and the dairy space, there have been recent transactions that have been significant uh, to be there. Now, it's not like a fossil natural gas well. You don't just turn it on and off. This is infrastructure that you need to own and operate longer term. And so some of the buyers we've seen in the market make 
total logical sense that they'd be able to pick this up. Other ones, this is going to be an entirely new kettle of fish that's going to be really hard for them to be able to figure out because you've got to go manage this, these facilities and they're smaller volumes and they require more attention. And so I would say we're going to see some attrition in the space or some collateral damage on this. I don't know exactly where it's going to be quite yet, but we've seen this industry uh, pick up and then drop off, pick up and drop off over the past kind of 20 years that I've been in it. But it's hotter now than it's ever been. And that's because people are paying more attention to decarbonization and truly sort of investing in that. And so that's exciting. But we also need to understand that there's going to be a lot of more lessons learned in our industry. Just one through line that uh, I think I've been hearing a little bit through the conversation so far is given that RNG has different sources of RNG have highly variable carbon intensity, some of the markets do account for that, the incentives account for that. And it kind of sounds like the market is is sort of baking that in, which strikes me as a good thing. Is it true that if you're, you know, if you're trying to build a portfolio of assets or sell a portfolio of assets that you will command a premium based on lower carbon intensity, all else equal? Yes, absolutely. Uh, lower carbon intensity will yield higher pricing because people are valuing the carbon. And so that is important. That did not exist even five years ago. It was it was a pretty much foreign concept. And so that is, the market's become much smarter both on the buy side as well as the sell side of, of the gas. And so that's been a good thing that we've seen uh, develop. What do you think is the main bottleneck to this market? Like what, what's going to be the limiting factor on growth over the next few years? Is it is it access to feedstock, you know, signing up all the smaller dairies or whatever it might be? Is it demand uh, where you're going to tap out the LCFS market and then need to figure out how to sell enough otherwise? Is it financing? Like what's what's the hardest thing to solve for? Honestly, it's probably the the know-how and the the sort of the the brain power and the teams to be able to do it is first bit with enough knowledge. And the second bit is going to be the development capital. Uh, a lot of financiers in the space, they're like, I, this project looks great, bring it back to me when it's, it's ready to go for investment. And you're like, no, this is going to take a half million dollars to a couple million dollars to develop that project and move that forward. Now, with the transition of new entrants into space that have acquired sort of the existing developers, you may see a change in that. But development capital and knowledgeable developers and operators are crucially important. Uh, 15 years ago, we were a developer and we were like, I think I, this might be there, the numbers are. We're now we're much more of an operator. We know what it takes to operate this infrastructure, make sure it's reliable and what it costs to make those products. And some people was like, well, just make it cheaper and I'm like, in terms of the capital cost to build the infrastructure. It's actually not re- that relevant. What's important is making sure you can reliably produce your RNG day in, day out for the customers. And that's how you'll actually be more successful. But I would say uh, the know-how and the labor and the other one is the development capital to be able to put these projects together are probably the two gating, gating items to move in this industry forward even faster. All right, final question. Um, always want to talk about sort of next generation technology. So, uh, you know, in RNG world, whether methods of RNG production using existing feedstock or different ways to produce RNG, what do you see coming down the pipe that could be, you know, transformative from a technology perspective? So the, the everybody, well, hydrogen has become uh, white hot, no pun intended. Uh, the issue with hydrogen is how are you going to be able to move those molecules around? 
And so where RNG is physically the same as natural gas in the pipeline, so you can be able to book it in, in one location and pull it up somewhere else, which works quite well. Hydrogen, you cannot stick this in the distribution lines or the transmission lines at any significant scale. So that is a challenge. Now, if you take, call it biogenic CO2, so a non-fossil-derived CO2 source, and you take the hydrogen and you turn it into methane, well, now you can get it in the pipeline and be able to also be able to do that so you can drive a new form of RNG and scale that up. Now, people say, why in the world do I want to take green hydrogen and make it into methane? I'm like, because I can move it around today and, I, and people are willing to buy it. Down the road, as utilities figure out how to be able to accept hydrogen in, well, then all of a sudden I turn the methanation side of those reactors off and I can be able to, to put hydrogen directly in and not lose the efficiencies on doing that. And so this is something that we see as the new tech and the approach going forward, that we're going to need to do that to be able to support the decarbonization movement and the development of hydrogen infrastructure. So what you're talking about is synthetic methane, right? So you basically, just to walk through that for one second, you get clean hydrogen, however you get that clean hydrogen, various ways to do that. Then you need a source of CO2 that is biogenic or direct air captured. So you either need to take like biomass or something like that, or you got to take uh, CO2 directly out of the atmosphere. And then you combine your CO2 and hydrogen to get CH4, which is natural gas, and then now it's transportable. You know, I think in some ways it's this super elegant solution to a lot of the problems with hydrogen. On the other hand, it comes at an inherent cost. It's clearly going to be more expensive than the hydrogen is on its own. Um, and it's certainly going to come at a premium relative to to fossil natural gas. What are you seeing in terms of the cost of production of synthetic methane relative to other sources of RNG, which I think is the more apt comparison. Yeah, so good question on the cost structure. It is going to be more money. So you're going to be in the over $30 in MMBTU to be able to sell it. And your carbon intensity is not going to be negative. It's going to be hovering around zero or a little higher, depending on your renewable mix that you produces the hydrogen from the renewable electricity. And so you have a disconnect between the, the value and the carbon intensity. But what you have is you have scale. You're, you're competing at the scale of landfill gas in terms of on a site-by-site -site basis. And so we see the market continuing to move around this. Now, I am taking into consideration the Inflation Reduction Act and some of the policies that are there uh, around hydrogen production and using that hydrogen when I give that, those economics to you. But there is a bit of a disconnect that's there. But uh, it's something that we see as a means to be able to move the molecules and transitioning the market un until the direct use of hydrogen market uh, can, it develops further, because right now it just is, is non-existent. All right, Brandon, thank you for the whirlwind tour through the world of renewable natural gas. It's, uh, it appears to be moving quickly, so uh, I think we will have another opportunity to chat about it again soon. That's good. Thank you, Shell. Uh, yeah, it is moving quite quickly. It's been very exciting, and uh, look forward to engaging with you in the future. Brandon Moffat is the co-founder and VP of development at Stormfisher, which is an RNG and hydrogen producer. This show is a co-production of Postscript Media and Canary Media. You can head over to canarymedia.com for links to today's topics. And as always, Postscript is supported by Prelude Ventures, a venture capital firm that partners with entrepreneurs to address climate change across a range of sectors, including advanced energy, food and ag, transportation and logistics, advanced materials and manufacturing, and advanced computing. This episode was produced by Daniel Waldorf, mixing by Roy Campanella and Sean Marquand, theme song by Sean Marquand. I'm Shail Khan, and this is Catalyst. Catalyst.